As life is wont to do, my first story episode is not a story episode. (laughs) My guest is a returning guest, the first returning guest on my podcast, Rich Hosek, and his two co-authors. The conversation became so captivating that we decided to pursue the question of what it's like to collaborate in the creation of a piece of art specifically a piece of writing. And for me, that's something near and dear to my heart. I hope that whether you're a reader or a writer, you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it and having this conversation. I did want to point your attention toward one thing that I think you will love. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast and you're curious to read a piece of my fiction to see what kind of author I am, if you're a reader listening to this show and you're interested to see how I write, I currently have a publication called On the Banks of the Columbia River. It's a story I wrote some years ago. It's one I'm very proud of. You might recognize the name Flannery O'Connor. It is a, a spin on her story, her short story, A good man is hard to find. And like I said, I'm very proud of it. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can pick up a copy. I only minted 200 of them. If you pick it up, you can own a collector's item that is also my story. It is 100% free. You could sell it in the future for any price you decided on. And, And I will use each of those 200 copies of the short story as a token. When I start selling my forthcoming novel, The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi, you'll be able to use this short story if you have one of the original 200 copies to get a great deal on my forthcoming novel. So go ahead and pick that up. It's a very easy process. You just add it to your wallet. You can read it. It's a collector's item. It's free. You can sell it for any price you want in the future. And you can just love it like a firstborn child or, you know, at least a stuffed animal or something. Anyway, grab a copy of On the Banks of the Columbia River, link in the show notes right now, and please enjoy my interview with Rich Hosek and company. If you've ever gone to a reading and felt bored, TRBM is the show for you. TRBM is for writers what time-lapse was for painters. Guitar solos and spotlights were for bands. What chainsaws and ice blocks were for sculptors. What does TRBM stand for? Totally real bookmaking. Telling righteous ballads, man? Toast, ravioli, bologna, and manicotti. The reluctant book mess? You decide. I think that Rich has probably let both of you know a little bit about what this podcast is, what it's going to become. And uh, I asked Rich to occasionally guest host with me as we move forward. So that's pretty excited. I'm I'm excited to see how that develops. Um, But let's go ahead and start out. Rich, um, introduce the three of you for me and then hand it off to one or the other of your compatriots. And we will start out just a quick introduction of, of all three of you. Sound okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so my name's Rich Hosick. I'm a writer, novelist, podcaster, television writer. Um, my co-writers on this project, Afterlife, uh, are Arnold Rudnick, who I also worked with, collaborated with on for, and television for, what, over a decade, didn't we? And then uh, Lloyd Auerbach, who is also 
I'm working on the project. He is a parapsychologist and uh, has done a lot of investigation and teaching in that field and uh, is a great resource for these books. So I actually think Arnold is probably the best guy to give the history because he has been in it from the beginning. So this project actually started decades ago. I don't want to say how many, but (laughs) (laughs) more than one. (laughs) Yeah, we we do say how many. And and if you buy near death, you can read all about it in in the back. But uh, yeah, thank you for having us on here. And uh, so, so Rich and I went to college together at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And I met Lloyd after I moved out to California and was working at Paramount Pictures. And we were doing a paranormal project that didn't end up getting made. And I was tasked with finding the expert to help the writer or director on that project understand the paranormal. And through all my research, Lloyd was the person to speak with. And so we became friends and stayed in touch over the years. And at that point, I was working with different partners and writing and, and Lloyd and I began collaborating on a paranormal partner, buddy cop drama. Uh, we, we had a, we, we put together our characters, Nate, Nate and Jennifer. And of course we were told nobody's going to do a paranormal show. So then X-Files came out and then we were told, well, you can't have a female and a male. It's too much X-Files. So we shelved it for many years. And, and in, in that time, while Lloyd and I were developing the project, Rich and I had went to school together, made films together, and, and supported each other in our writing. And we made a, a conscious effort to team up and begin writing for, you know, promising a decade, because you're really an entity when you're writing in Hollywood. And so we wrote television. And we wrote a bunch of television and we got an agent and we did episodes. And so early on, you know, Lloyd and I talked and I said, everything I'm writing, I'm doing with Rich. Can he come on? And we've always been very excited to work together. So between Lloyd, Rich and I, uh, Rainy and Day's Supernatural Sleuths, I think it's called, uh, was well, originally called Psychops, if you remember. Oh, I love that title still. Yeah, yeah it was originally yeah, no. called Psychops, PSI. Um and, and so, but Nate Rainey and Jennifer Day came to life in a script that we were very proud of and, and didn't do anything with for a number of years. So that, that's the origin of it. But then Rich picked it up and came, reached out to Lloyd and I and said, I'd really like to novelize this. And hmm. we love the idea. And so he took that and, and Near Death was created. And he's really shepherded this, so that that's uh, really appreciated. But yeah, I, I just want to take a moment too to, to to name drop a little because some of those TV credits he glossed over were like Fresh Prince of Bel Air and Star Trek Voyager and oh, the yeah. New Adams Family. So we've we've done some real TV. Just want to let that. Well, yeah, you yeah. should. And and the first time, Rich, that I had you on the show. So anybody who's been listening from near the beginning knows that I mixed up my Star Treks, uh, unfortunately. So I, I got all excited. And now now I can't even remember. I think I was thinking it was the uh, the one with um, Scott Bakula was yeah. one, where my brain went that first time. So not not Voyager. In fact, uh, one thing I think that I want to know, and so I have to assume my listeners want to know is the assumption here. And and pardon me if if. Well, I just I just have to ask the question. The assumption here is if you've written for these TV shows, you seem like made men um, and like uh, daily household names. 
how do you get from there to here to the novels? What's been happening in the time between and what's, yeah, let me leave it there. And I, I don't know who to ask first. So I apologize if anyone wants to jump in with that. I'll jump right in and say overnight success takes about 20 years. And, <laughs> yeah. and so we're a few years shy. Um, I look at the credits of people. Rich and I worked on another TV show that that's name won't mean as much. But we worked alongside the writers who have done a lot of the Mission Impossible now and actually Star Trek as well with J.J. Abrams. Um, I've, I've worked at Paramount Pictures. I worked with Gary Lucchese Productions, associate producer of Primal Fear. Um, all wow. of these things are building blocks. And Lloyd will, will share his background with the books and the movies that they've, they've led to. Um, but you're always redefining yourself and you're always kind of building that career and there are some names everybody recognizes that, you know, can write their own ticket, but very, very few. And, and many talented actors that we reach out to and want to work with, it's like not every studio studios. I think Alfred Hitchcock said that actors are cattle. I wouldn't say that, but mm. you know, studios look to a lot of actors and they differentiate them into casting versus stars. And now we're looking mm. at streaming and how things are marketed it's such a diverse business that we're just lucky to make some money in it and be able to keep doing it. Yeah, um, we, we were we were in a situation too where we were on track. We had a um, a contract at Fox uh, Family, and we were had a couple of pilots in the works, and we were all excited about this. And then they got bought out by ABC, became well, ABC and, Family. And don't and forget, then, we had a pilot with Brandon Tartikoff, but oh, he yeah. died. Which, <laughs> yeah, he died. We're very, which he was one of he was the best notes we ever got on scripts, mm. like the mm. smartest, most clear, as, as opposed to the amp it up, make it 10% funnier, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was a situation where, you know, the, the executive shift, all of our projects got shelved and we found ourselves from be, being rising stars to like, suddenly like, okay, what's next? Mm. And all of that, all of the people who were there before you, all your projects are kind of like, you know, they're they're dead now. They're, they're stuck in a drawer. Mm. No one's going to look at them anymore. No one, no one, none of the executives are going to look at any of the other old executives' work and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then, you know, we had families, we had children. To be honest, Hollywood is not a great business to raise a family in. You're kidding. So I I kind of <laughs> I kind of think it were, I was actually accidentally fortunate that I was able to uh, have my time with my son outside of that world. Yeah, and then um, but the, the we always kept writing. You know, we're, we've been working on projects and screenplays and stuff like that. And then I decided a few years back to say, you know, I've got these novels inside of me. I want to start writing those. And so, yeah, when Lloyd and Arnold said, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. I said, okay, I'm going to do this, but you guys need to be involved with this on me, right? I, I don't want to just take this and make this mine. I want it to be ours. And yeah. so the process involves all of us, even though they want to give me the credit for writing most of the novel. The inspiration for the stories, especially this latest novel, Afterlife, comes directly from a case that Lloyd investigated. You want to talk a little bit about that, Lloyd? Well, yeah, and, and actually, I should, first I should comment, you know, on the other side of TV, which is the reality side, uh, because I've been so involved in that. My, in fact, I just to let you know, Jody, I, my dad was a producer for NBC Sports uh, and then had his own company, used to produce the Rose Bowl and Tournament of Roses Parade internationally. My uncle Larry was a, a lifetime soap opera director with Love of Life, All My Children, One Life to Live, 
Um, and I, I've had other family members involved in the media. In fact, my brother currently works at the Today Show as a stage manager. So I've been around the TV industry since actually since before I was born in many respects. And I've worked with producers over the years. And th- there are two situations that have popped up constantly, uh, one of which is similar to what they were talking about with, with ABC Family buying, buying being bought out. And that was, I worked on a, on actually a game show called Telepathy back in the early 2000s. We had a really great setup. We had some real psychic stuff going on. Um, it was for the game show network. We actually did a live run through for the president and the VP and a couple of the executives of the game show network. They loved it. They were going to buy it. It was in pre-production. And then the regime changed and the new guy canceled everything that was not already in production. And this is very common in television. The other thing that I've run into is working on kind of ghost hunting shows or kind of related shows has been being approached by producers and working with producers to define a good show based on the reality that we in parapsychology deal with and what people actually experience. And they were asked to come up with something different than ghost hunters every single time. And every single time we did with different twists and turns to it. It went back to the network or to the streaming service, and they said, no, we think we're going to go with the guys, these guys over here, because they're doing something just like Ghost Hunters, and we know that that gets ratings. So this this is all very common in television. Yeah. So uh, pause that thought, too, because I really love the way that this answer turned out, and I want to add a little bit of nuance to it. A couple of things. One is writers are rarely the people in front. You you mentioned earlier... um, Arnold, how, how, uh, actors could be viewed as cattle. And, and so I think, I think that there's different ways that we all fit into boxes, but writers are behind the scenes a lot. Uh, I, I'm below interviewing cattle. Yeah, right below <laughs> or, or hiding behind the cattle. We're orchestrating how the cattle move through the fenced lots. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm going to be interviewing Robert Olin Butler pretty soon for this show. He has written some brilliant fiction. Um, he, can't support himself off of his fiction. He won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. He can't support himself. And so when I ask the question, why aren't you household names? I think part of that is a little bit in jest. Um, and, yeah. and so I, that's the one thing that I do want to clarify. I've been at this for, for 20 years. I don't, I don't uh, look like I have, but I've been working my way towards this moment as well. And there's no, there's no household name breakthrough coming for me that I can see anytime soon. So I do, I do want to, take that and then pass it back to you, Lloyd, and, and hear a little bit yeah, more about yeah. your... I've been teaching a publishing class uh, at, at a university for now three decades. And that is the case. I mean, I, my students come in, I say, well, first, first of all, you should know you're not going to make a living as a writer. Uh, you can make a living as a speaker or doing things associated with your writing. And the book is, becomes kind of a, a way in in some respects, but it doesn't work that way, unfortunately, nor is, is it can you make a living as a parapsychologist most of the time either. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been involved in this field since my grad school days. I have a, actually have a master's in parapsychology uh, mm-hmm. since 1979. And from the beginning, uh, even though I originally started looking at laboratory research, I actually took more to the field investigation work and field work. So uh, our, the books uh, t- tap some of my cases and the one that Rich referred to, uh, which is the major bulk, there's actually another case up front uh, involving a squirrel <laughs> that I have to mention. Um, but the, the case that's involved is actually a, a really good case. The, the case that actually convinced me that ghosts were real, honestly. Hmm. Uh, and that was a case I had back in ni- the end of 84, beginning of 1985 here in the Bay Area 
And just because a, a short encapsulated, this kid went up to his mom and made a comment about the ghost that was in their house, which he knew she and his dad and his grandmother were all seeing, although they never talked with each other about it. Hmm. And they've been living in this house, this old house, Victorian house, uh, era house for since uh, for about a year and a half. And it turned out that they had all been seeing this ghost once a week, but they never, they wow. ignored the ghost. They didn't want to scare anybody. The kid had talked to the ghost. I mean, he basically waved at her. She waved back. They had a conversation. Huh. They were having daily communication. Wow. Literally. Uh, and in the investigative process, we sat down with the mother, the grandmother, the father was out of town, uh, the kid and an empty chair, which is apparently where the ghost was sitting, where Lois was sitting. And we got all this really specific family information, like family stories um, and a lot of other, and also some, I, I asked questions about, you know, what's it like being a ghost, that kind of thing. Why are mm. you here? Mm-hmm. And the answers first on the second part, you know, what's it like being a ghost essentially fit some of the older literature. Um, my first book had not come out yet. Uh, there were only a couple of other books that really addressed this. It would have been harder for them to find. This kid would not have found him in a library. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. But then I found the, uh, I was able to contact the only living relative of the woman who was in the house, the ghost in the house. And he confirmed, he actually finished some of the family stories as I was telling him, relating wow. them. So this was uh, a really interesting case that continued for years after to the point where um, at one point I talked to uh, Pat, the mom, and I said, how's Chris doing? And she said, well, he's really popular with girls. I said, well, he's a good looking kid. No, no. He gets to ask Lois for advice. <laughs> so he, she was his like confidant therapist advisor. Wow. Uh, and, and he was a good kid. He ended up being a really good kid because of this. Wow. That is crazy. That's not your average ghost story. There's nothing scary about that at all. Well, you know, most of the cases we deal with, they may start out scary because mm-hmm. people are, uh, well, first of all, they're affected by pop culture. There's yeah. that's number one. Right. Uh, and, 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 and or religion. But the other thing is that they don't spend the time trying to figure out what's going on. And yeah. that's what we do. And we find that there really isn't anything scary about them. Annoying, yes, but mm-hmm. scary, not so much. You know, I, I said, I, I've always speculated, and I, maybe you could deep dive and find that Stephen King has even talked about this, but I've always speculated that he is actually a man who has been in regular contact with with the paranormal in some way or another, because his work just seems so confidently anchored in that world, like not in the same way that other authors I read who will deal or dabble in that and he has such a sense of like the the spectrum of life, death, afterlife, and those kind of things. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to find out at some point that that he would even come on the record and say some of those things because it, it he just has a kind of wisdom that you don't find in a lot of places that really matches that story you were talking about with the boy. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that he he at least does his research. Uh, the the other the author mm-hmm. that really the really hits the paranormal and hits all notes is Richard Matheson. Oh, I love him. Yeah. And Matheson, uh, my friend Barry Taff, who's also a parapsychologist, knew Matheson really well. And Matheson, he said, uh, had the most incredible parapsychology library. In fact, he's actually written a nonfiction book hmm. uh, called Mediums Rare about the early days of spiritual mediumship. And Matheson was incredibly knowledgeable. He had all the journals. I mean, he was reading everything. So yeah. well, he would start from a point which was real and move on from there. And this, I'm assuming that King, if he didn't have experiences, that that's exactly what he did. In fact, that's what yeah. a lot of the better writers put a little seed of truth into what they're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. It just has such a, a sense of truth. Um, Rich, talk to me a little bit about, because you had a conversation leading into this podcast um, with your collaborators uh, about, you know, how this was going to go. And I know that you and I didn't 100% settle on it, but do we want to try the story element in this episode or do we want to stick to talking about your work? How do you envision this going? Um I, I, I really want to leave it up to you. I, I know you want to uh, do the new format, but which I'm excited to do. But I'm also yeah. excited this the way this conversation is going too. Likewise, yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of uh, just wisdom and storytelling and collaborating. So my my sense is let's follow that because it makes the most sense. So with that in <clears throat> mind. Um, I'm going to let you kind of drive a little bit here and just bring out the conversation about how do authors collaborate in writing stories? What roles have each of you had in bringing uh rainy day to life and, and how do you see that moving forward? Well, let me, let me talk to that one. Yeah. So the first book was, I, w- I don't want to say easy, but it was simpler because we had a screenplay that we, it was based on. We had the main a and B stories going on. We had the characters pretty fleshed out. And what I did as a novelist is I took those characters and I like gave them more depth, right? It's like what's going on in their heads, the kind of stuff that you can't do in a screenplay, right? You can't talk about what's going on in their heads. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what's going on with them. So I was able, I had the chance to just take those moments, take those elements and really expand on them. And then also added a few more characters, added a few more scenes, kind of shifted things around. We were, we were kind of a, a little bit more lighthearted in the screenplay than the novel mm-hmm. was, especially in the beginning. And so now it, it became a process where then once I had a first draft, it went back to these guys for comments, right? Especially Lloyd. I rely on Lloyd a lot because one of the characters is essentially Lloyd as a female anthropology professor. He, has a, he also has a little background in anthropology, and, and she's also a magician. Lloyd is also a magician as well. And so we, whenever she's doing a lecture or an interview about the paranormal, I rely on Lloyd to sort of like tell me where I'm going wrong and, uh, and sort of bring it back home to reality. So there's, a, there's a, a few scenes in each book where she kind of does a deep dive into a topic based on the writings of Lloyd. And then the... Uh, the, the I rely on Arnold to like, you know, rein the story in to say, Hey, this isn't working. This, the beginning of this book is not starting off. Right. You, this, this scene here with this character doing this does not sound like her. And so I get those kinds of that collaboration notes. Cause when we worked in television, I mean, television is such a collaborative medium. Uh, the story gets kicked back and forth dozens of times inside of a week, a lot of changes going on. So Arnold and I come from that world and it's just having that, that, Bouncing the ideas back and forth and saying, does this work? I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? That really speeds up the process for me. So they give me the feedback. They give me the, the clarifications and notes. I go back, read it up. It goes out to beta readers. We get more comments. And then we put it together and send it out. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll jump in, too. Yeah, I just want to say, I think for, for us at this point in our lives, reconnecting and working on this, it's really nice to take something that not a lot of people have read and convert it into something that can reach an audience that really gives them life. And you, you talked about briefly about making a living or Lloyd said how he teaches. Um, I used to go to career day for my kids. I pay the bills with accounting and I write, you know, for a few years, Rich and I pay the bills with writing and it's nice, but you know, my hero is O. Henry who died penniless, but he created stories that 
we know today, even if we don't know his name. So I think having that opportunity to breathe life into these characters and Rich really shepherding that, um, you asked about where this is going. I think we've just talked about more and more ideas mm-hmm. and the ability now with the changes in publishing and, and even the, the changes in, in video and production and independent film, you know, there's so many different ways we can explore what to do with, with Rainy and Day now. Uh, the review on, on Near Death after it came out was, this would be a great streaming series. So <laughs> we agree. I wonder why. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder why that is. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Do you feel like um, at heart you are are leaning towards the, the novelization of it, or do you all still continue to view it as being eventually – uh, something in film or streaming, something along those lines. Hopefully, but, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. above. I mean, yeah. yeah, I, I think similarly in our conversations. I mean, I remember meeting Rich in, in college, and and I remember conversations with Lloyd. I think we're all authors, so like that predated film even. Mm. And there, there definitely is a purpose that you reach more people when things are translated. Um, but we're, we're talking about the paranormal and, and Lloyd was talking about when he first believed in ghosts. I want to say just like Nate and Jennifer, I don't know that I believe yet. I, uh, wow. I am skeptical like Nate, but I do believe why not? I mean, we live in a world. I wrote a kid's book called ESP that Lloyd was also helpful with and wrote the, the forward. And it's a sixth grader who can read minds. We can read minds. We write minds. So it's like literature gives us that opportunity. And when you start predicting story or like Rich said, would a character, you know, where would this go? You realize that some of this is intuition. Mm -hmm. Some of this is coming from a universal story sense. Um, There's, there's a lot of different directions, but, but having worked in TV and, and the reach of TV and film certainly make that a, a welcome continuation for the characters. Yeah. Let me toss in my one supernatural story that I've had experience with. Well, there's, I have two, but one that I directly can, you know, have verifiable facts and there's no reason for it. But I was in the seventh grade, uh, and we all, my brothers and sisters went to the same school. Our gym teacher was named Mr. Capalupo. And, uh, we had had him through, uh, what, six years of us going to that school. He'd always worn a goatee. Always. Always. There was never a day he didn't have a goatee. And there's a Friday. My brother and I are leaving. And I look over at him just compelled. Like I had this vision in my head that Mr. Caplupo shaved his goatee. And I just said it offhandedly like, hey, Mr. Caplupo is going to shave his goatee this weekend. We get back on Monday and he is clean shaven. (laughs) And my brother was like, he told you. And I was like, I swear he didn't tell me. What a weird, random thing to happen. But for sure, that was just this random vision that I grabbed onto. So I've always been a little more inclined to say, there's something going on that I can't understand or put into words and probably science will eventually catch up and explain these things in a way that we can relate to. We're trying to do in parapsychology. And and honestly, that experience you just related is more common. I mean, that kind of like totally like, where did that come from? Or this doesn't mean the purpose. (laughs) they're, They're totally mundane. They're, they're irrelevant. 
But we get a lot of irrelevant data coming into our heads anyway, you know, mm-hmm. from the world around us. And there's nothing, no reason why ESP wouldn't be irrelevant as well. Right. Yeah. You catch, I, I just happened to catch his thought leaving school. Right. He thought, I'm going to shave this weekend. And for some reason, I picked up that frequency or something. Or maybe you gave him the thought. Yes. Ooh, that's terrifying. <laughs> I made him shave. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. We've okay. had lots of conversations about like everything from the, the Zener cards and whether, you're picking up on the card or the person looking at it. And uh, mm. I like, I like Lloyd's explanation about, you know, parapsychology kind of being the, the bastard science that's not taken seriously. But on the flip side, medicine relies on mm. mind over matter with the placebo test. I've heard him say yeah. this because Lloyd and I also conducted a seminar in, in California. Would a ghost say that? Mm-hmm. Because we see ghosts miss represented in so many entertainment properties Mm. and if it's entertaining that's fine right but we do have a responsibility as writers as creators we are teaching the world something about the paranormal Mm. and when kids grow up and they think poltergeists are going to come through the tv (laughs) not necessarily right that's an amazing. I love. I love how you steered that toward a, a very serious outlook at the responsibility of of representing something to the best of your ability to be true, and the license to fictionalize. Both of those things, I think, are really important. And you're absolutely right. We think about placebo all the time. If we could figure it out, you know, there'd be no. There's, there's only been a couple. St- the thing is, there's very little actual research on placebo. Um, the more re- most recent one, I think it was a couple of years ago, where they found that an oral placebo is not as effective as an injectable placebo, even if people know they're both placebos. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because injections apparently psychologically seem like they should be more powerful than taking a pill. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think of it in a simple way, too, of of my wife is determined, bound and determined that she doesn't like seafood. And I'm always telling her that's kind of like saying you don't like food food because there's as much variety of seafood as yeah. there is anything else. You just tasted something at some point that didn't work for you. And your brain now tells you this entire category of life is off limits. That's placebo. You can't you can't force yourself out of that kind of realm of of placebo i guess once once you've adapted it it's almost become genetic i suppose well and there's the reverse side of that which is the nocebo effect where you're yeah. you're causing a negative effect on yourself yeah yep absolutely i'm gonna go off on a totally another tangent from what you were saying <laughs> it, it has frustrated me nothing against the bird watchers and i love them the way we look at a bird with a certain marking and a certain wing and say well that's the eastern warbler of the western species and then we have a different you know, color, and suddenly it's an entirely different bird identified, they can fly. So it's like we try and categorize these things, and and we categorize them however is convenient to us, hmm. because it is nice to get down to seafood versus food, but it's also, we are all connected. It is all yeah. the same thing on a bigger level. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the things that that strikes me as I've been writing these books and research, reading Lloyd's books again and trying to put this together. Because in this latest novel, um, there's a, a ghost talking to a boy, like Lloyd related here. Yeah. We had like a little twist, and she has a secret. She knows where she hid some money from bank robber, but but she can't quite remember. So the boy is the only one who can talk to her. So the guys who want to recover this money need to get the boy to get the information. So. A lot of jeopardy, a lot of great action scenes, a lot of suspense, a very thrilling story. But the other aspect of it that really 
is fascinating to me is like writing the scenes from the ghost's point of view. When she realizes I'm dead, how am I able to see and hear and communicate with people? How am I able to move around? How am I able to find people in a crowd? And so the explanations that Lloyd propagates about how our it's the ghost is a survival of our consciousness. So it's an extension, an ongoing aspect of ourselves that we have when we're living. So when we hear about people who have abilities to like do astral projection or remote viewing and stuff like that, it like kind of makes sense that a ghost would be able to take those senses with them when they don't have a body. Because they don't have any physical senses. So how would a ghost even see us? Yeah. Except visually through a form of extrasensory perception. It's non-sensory perception at that point. Yeah. That stuff is, it's, it's wild. It, it, it's very quickly. I start realizing that I, I can't even like swim in those waters in some ways. Well, it's, it's, it's fun. That's why it's fun to read these books because it does yeah. sort of take you on that journey and sort of lead you on that discovery with not only the actual characters, but the, the ghost character in this particular story gets her own scenes, gets to express mm-hmm. herself and we get to see what she's thinking and feeling. And then also um, at the end of each of these books too, Lloyd does a very substantial afterward kind of doing a deep dive into those topics from an academic point of view, too. That's fun. Yeah, that's, for the okay. general public. Yeah. Not, and also not in general. each story, Nate comes in and finds a possible alternative. <laughs> so. Yes. He is what we call a, a, a pseudo-skeptic. He refuses yeah. to be open to the idea, even though he's had personal experiences that are undeniably of the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'd go so far, Lloyd, you've even said, too, you and, and Houdini, approach things with a skeptical point of view you're when right so uh, yeah i like to call myself a skeptical believer in the sense that overall i believe in life after death and all this but each individual case and reported experience needs to be looked at differently or separately to look for the normal explanations and even in my best apparition case i mean the case i mentioned before that there this uh book is based on um there was no i mean there was one piece of it that i said okay we're going to throw this out the kid talked about hearing about the history of the city of Livermore from the ghost, but he's 12. He's going to school in Livermore. And I don't know how much he's read. He might not even know how much he's read or heard about the city. So we didn't, we completely ignored all that. And you have to really take, take a look at every bit of information, every bit of the experience. If there's physical stuff, what else could cause that and separate that from what might be paranormal or psychic, as we call it, uh, in order to study what's really going on. So uh, one one curiosity I have, and this may go nowhere, but have you heard of the work of or uh, at all Der- Dr. Tara Swart Bieber before? No, that name okay. does not sound familiar. She is, I wish I remember which university um, she's at. It's one of the Ivy League schools, and she's doing a lot of research on, um, see, now I'm forgetting even the name of it, but basically the idea that you can visualize your success. Um, and there never oh, yeah. was any kind of uh, real hard science on it before. Um, but she's doing hard research and they're finding all kinds of proof that you can visualize outcomes that you want and manifest. That's what it is. That's the word I was it's looking manifesting. for. It's manifesting. It's that thing, the secret. It goes back the to the power of positive thinking. When the secret first yeah. came out, 
Um, yeah. I was on a, I mean, not like the week of, but it was enough time that it had gained some steam. I was on a hitchhiking trip from Omaha, Nebraska to Washington, D.C. to see the birth of my friend's baby. Uh, I, I missed it. I got there too late. But there was a one trucker in Tennessee who picked me up. Um, there's so much more I could tell about this story that's insane <laughs> and, and is almost like uh, the universe speaking to me in a way. So I've never really framed it that way before. But this one trucker picked me up and the entire drive that he took me on, he was talking about how the secret had changed his life. And it was mm. such a profound book. And I remember sitting there at that time in my life with a Christian worldview thinking like, this is a bunch of baloney. It's hooey. He's a hack. It's crazy. Um, and I look back at that now and in so many ways, I manifested that trip into an amazing experience and, uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool. So I, I look back now and I just think these things, they're real. We don't understand them. Um, does that factor in at all to paranormal in your experience or is that a different research entirely? Well, I mean, it does factor in in the sense that, um, if we're talking about psychic experience, most of the time our psychic abilities are unconscious. Yeah. So having conscious intention could conceivably do one of two things. Uh, one is put, allow us to be intuitive and psychic enough to put ourselves in situations or with people that will get us that outcome, kind of precognition, knowing a little bit about the future, just connecting with information to do that. The other is we may be able to knock over the right domino, which might have an effect uh, down the line. Um, it's, from what we've seen, people can't influence other people psychically the way that pe- that they show in the movies. Right. Um, but you can, you know, but the fact is that we can influence people psychologically, even when we're having interactions with people with nonverbal communication. So there is an element of putting the idea out there and having somebody pick it up and accept it yeah, uh, unconsciously or consciously. So you can influence people with a positive outlook, with that visualization, with your behavior and I think the secret and the manifesting thing allows people to pr- reprogram themselves to interact with the world differently than they have before. Yeah. That's- yeah, I'm going to manifest that we're going to double our sales on each of these books in this series. So by the eighth one, we'll be millionaires. Well, so listen, actually, as much as you say that, and I, I do appreciate it, Rich, but I mean, that I, I think a lot about that in, in terms of what we're all trying to accomplish, because we're not on this conversation. I'm not recording this podcast. I'm not making this to meet amazing people. That's actually a byproduct of what I'm out to do. What I'm out to do is to build uh, a brand and a trust that people like what I bring to the table, the people that uh, I bring to them and they trust me. And that trust then leads them to read my books and the quality of my books leads them to read more of my books. So all of these things that we're doing, I think that there is something inside of you, in the core of you, the stories you have to tell are so important to you, so precious to you that you want to project them out into the world. And the further out there they get, Somehow that gains meaning. Um, and oftentimes you can spin that conversation and say, oh, well, that sounds so selfish or self-serving. But there's power in stories that mm-hmm. is far beyond self-serving. I mean, these stories, there are people who believe in the muse. Stephen Pressfield talks about the muse all the time. Um, I think that if he wasn't afraid of being called a kook, he would actually say that he really really believes in the muse, that his stories aren't his stories, that he's just channeling the muse's stories. So with that in mind, I do want to talk to you about the benefit of collaborating. The three of you each have uh, separate networks that you tap into to accomplish things. Um, what are ways that collaborating amplifies and enhances your ability to achieve the millionaire goal that you just stated? Well, 
I can I can say for, so from my point of view, like uh, we're we're each also promoting this along different channels too. Yeah. Um, I've I've got a, a short story podcast that you know about that I produce stories for every week, and that has also been like sort of a vehicle to get listeners into my audience. And then expose them to the novels by mentioning, hey, by the way, if you like this story, check out my book over on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Arnold is, uh, you know, has got experience in the Hollywood world. He's still linked there. You know, when we want to try and get the books to producers to get exposure and maybe get produced by somebody, we've got that channel. Lloyd is tied into the whole paranormal uh, nonfiction market and then the, the uh, reality shows and also uh, – various radio and TV and, and podcasts right. in that genre as well. And I do a lot of media. I mean, I, I'm doing on the average, at least two to three podcasts, various podcasts a month Wow. and then occasional TV. Um, so it just, it just kind of brings things, keeps bringing things up. My whole goal early on was to be an educator and also to kind of bring some truth about the, about parapsychology and the paranormal to the public through the media, uh, social media, but of course through the mass uh, traditional media as well. So mm. I'm still trying in that area. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll throw into the collaboration aspect. And again, Rich touched on it. Television is such a collaborative world, yeah. and there's often only one or two names on the script, but a lot of brain trust that goes into it. And having people you work with who you trust their opinion, um, it just helps create something. And nothing we create our story is meaningless if it's not read. And if it is read and it's misunderstood, that's on us too. So having, we've got a core group of readers outside of us, but when we're working on stuff, writing, co-writing, even just supporting individually on projects, um, having that collaboration up front just gives a little bit of a freedom. So, I mean, again, this would not have happened if it weren't for Rich's energy, enthusiasm and, and perseverance. So, um, we, oh, we, definitely, <laughs> uh, we, we definitely appreciate and respect that. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and it's just amazing. But, you know, I remember nights and countless times, Rich and I, when we were on the new Adams family, we would be writing a script, editing a script and coming up with pitches all in the same four day week. And so mm-hmm. we divided stuff up, but we often, you know, the three of us have different ideas about things but enough of a common core sense that it funnels to a unified product. Yeah. And then doing day trips up to Vancouver to be on the set too. That was fun. That was you fun. Know, it was, we were younger then and had a lot more energy, but it was still, it was, it was exciting to be part of that. Now is this Vancouver, Canada or Vancouver, yeah. Washington. Okay. Canada. Yeah. 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 And I seem to recall there was even an episode where you had a parapsychologist named Lloyd in it too. <laughs> in the, the movie, it didn't, well, there was a movie one too. Yeah, Lights, yeah. camera, Adams. But did we? We'll look. We'll look. Well, yes, I think I know we did because we, we. That's yeah, that's we another did. secret about TV writers, by the way, too. A lot of the side characters, the names, wonder where they come from. It's people we know. Yeah, <laughs> it's family members. It's friends. It's you know. Um, uh, there's a uh, when I was working on the Fresh Prince of Bel Air as a writer's assistant, um, Will Smith's uh, guidance counselor is named Mister Hosek. Oh really? Yeah, that's hilarious. Oh, that's that's really that's amazing. That's crazy. 
I mean, I, I should know that that happens because in all of the novels I've written, if I'm not using people's names, I am using templates. Although every single novel I've written does have a cameo from a real life friend of mine. So in the, the novel that, that I have coming out here shortly, um, the main character bumps into a, a guy named John in a parking lot in a Trader Joe's parking lot. And that's my real friend, John. So it's, it's kind of like that, uh, Alfred Hitchcock thing, except instead of me, it's people <laughs> that I know. I just thought it would be fun to do. So it's you can. Yeah, there's, there's that inspiration. I mean, it's you see those memes all around all the time. You know, be careful what you say to a writer because it's going to be yes. in his next book. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I want to keep talking about the power of collaboration in terms of getting the story out there. Um, more of the episodes coming forward will actually be live storytelling because I want to draw readers to this podcast. But I think that something that, that fascinates readers, and I am one of the more prolific readers I know of, uh, is, is the behind the scenes life of the people who are writing. And that's just how this episode has gone. So I'm excited to hear from you. Like, how about the nitty gritty stuff? Have you guys thought about going in together on Amazon campaigns to, to advertise for your books or using, uh, Facebook to to, to create any kind of videos and things like that? What what types of things do you collaborate on for the marketing of the books? We talk about that a lot. And, and I've worked in marketing and in business and love that side of it. And yeah. Roy, too, has, has done a lot of uh, PR. Um, so Rich, Lloyd, and I have talked about various things, whether it's an award you win or a press release here. One of the nice things about media today is it's very easy to see the effect of an advertising yeah. campaign to see what a podcast or what an advertisement or what an Amazon campaign or, or Facebook does in relation to sales. Mm-hmm. And um, even book signings are something I think that authors love to do. Mm-hmm. They don't pay for themselves at right. all, but, but it shouldn't all be about money as, as someone mm-hmm. who works in finance. I have to say that that dollars are only one measure. Yeah. And and again, when when I would go to a career day or talk to people, if you're looking for a career in writing to make a fortune, then that let's have a different conversation. There's a whole bunch of stuff to go in. If yeah. you're looking yeah. to make a difference, then the byproduct of that can very well be a lot of money when when you hit certain success. But I think it's important to define that success early on. So we yeah. found that you know, reaching readers, reaching reviews. Of course, we're going to get some reviews from friends and family. Mm-hmm. But when when it's like, oh, that's a great review. Who's that? Lloyd, do you know? Rich, do you know? And it's like, no, we don't know. It's it's really great to reach people we haven't reached before. So. Right. Yeah, there's there's a challenge in what you're saying because I I agree with you that that um putting money at the forefront of what you do is going to lead to bad outcomes because it it will cause you to compromise on uh philosophy that you would otherwise hold dear to you. Um I've been thinking a lot right now about the role of web3 which listen, I hardly know anything about like the blockchain and those type of things, but I'm starting to understand how there are ways that we can free ourselves up to make a living um, as a writer, as long as you're not thinking um, uh, immediately about being a millionaire overnight, maybe you publish a book. And if you 
hold the the actual rights to the book and you're not sitting in 15th position so that you get 10% of sales, you actually maybe do stand a chance of making a living on your writing. It's probably not going to be for a while a really big thing, but even, even publishing on Amazon as a self-published author, you have a much better chance than if you go through one of the prestigious uh, publishers. So have, w- w- what are your thoughts there of, of changing the way that we approach the world in order to maybe reap more of the rewards? Are there sacrifices yeah, that, I'm not thinking of? Yeah, I, I can, I can kind of say something about since I've been t- looking into this for the publishing piece of it. Yeah. And the reality is that publishers, other than the top writers who get really nice advances, yeah, uh, you get next to nothing. And the percentages, you know, you mentioned 10%. Uh, my first book was a mass market paperback. I think I got six and a half percent up to a certain number of copies and it went up to seven and then, and so on. Um, and I, I did, did get a great advance because it was writing on the coattails of Ghostbusters. That yeah. Came out. yeah. Uh, but it, if you don't get that great advance, you, you can't count on even the book earning out against that. You know, even if you got a good advance, you can't even count on it earning out. Right. Um, my second and third book, all three of the first books were published by Warner. The second book, they only pu- printed printed enough copies to earn out my advance. Oh my! So I never made any money past that. Yeah. The same with the third book. I don't even think they printed enough copies. So when you go to a big publisher, people have this idea that they're going to send you on a book tour. They're mm-hmm. going to promote it. Yeah, no. Even even my first one where the editor was behind me, um, the promotional, the marketing department, they released it in October in hopes of capturing on Halloween. I did all of the getting me on TV and everything else. All they did was sending out free copies to the the radio and TV stations that wanted copies. We actually had to, we had to blackmail them to get me a flight down to LA to be on a national radio show because the publisher oh didn't want gosh. to pay for me to do that. And radio doesn't have money for that. So oh the radio um, host actually told them he would never have another Warner author on unless they flew me down to LA, which was like 200 bucks, you know? Oh my gosh. So, yeah. It's a crazy business. It, publishing is a crazy business. I, yeah. I want to jump on that in a different direction, though, too. It, it's not a bad thing to make money working in other areas because you meet people and you do other things. Yeah. And, and you know, quite frankly, Lloyd doesn't work in writing. He works in right. parapsychology, anthropology, mm-hmm. and and, and I have a and I have a real job too. So writing is but a real is job. Is any but yeah, job I real? I mean, uh, so, well, yeah. I mean, I, so I also with, work for an online information company. So yeah. yeah. So with when I was at Paramount Pictures, it, it was the Motion Picture Story Department, and you would see scripts come in, you would see projects come in, and and you can look at books, you can look at movies. People come into this industry with experiences that are irreplaceable. And, and there are, uh, on Primal Fear, I think William Deal began, I, I think, in his 60s when he was selling books. So I have a few years left before I have to do my real job. Um, <laughs> it's those experiences are really, really vital. Mm-hmm. Rich and I used to go around and pitch, you know, ideas and movies and young executives would be like, oh, what about this idea? And we'd be like, oh, you mean like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, meets this, meets this movie that came out. You know, mm-hmm. movies get redone all the time. It's important to have that history and knowledge of television, of books, of literature, yes. so that you can either change it, borrow from it, improve it, or or just, you know, take another pass at it. But there's no shame in in working with real people in real situations to have an experience that you're able to convey 
in books and media, because otherwise you're just going to be writing about things that are in an ivory tower. Well, Jack London would never have written his books if he didn't have real experiences. Yeah. Well, so to that to that point, though, and this is one of the things that I see happening and it, I think is incredibly unfortunate is that right now you have a machine called academia and you can start out getting a bachelor of fine arts and creative writing and then you can get a master's of fine arts and creative writing. And that's called a terminal degree. So now I can teach other kids to get a bachelor of fine arts and creative writing. You can <laughs> teach other kids to get a master of fine arts and creative writing. And that is quite literally what is happening to a huge segment of literature is because you can't make a living as an author, you're forced to make a living as a teacher and then mm-hmm. try to continue publishing books with publishers because you're not authentic unless you get to publish with a publisher. So you can't stay in academia and it is devouring itself. The segment of people who are publishing with big publishers is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And the world is becoming more insular and more hidden from what really matters. And so we have to be thinking of new ways to take our real life experience uh, and put it back into the page and hopefully on the screen. So so I am uh, one semester away from my MFA in screenwriting yes. uh, because I want to have the terminal degree so I can yeah. teach. And, Absolutely. And I agree with you that, you know, I don't want to teach people with broken promises of, oh, here's the formula, these, you know, hero's journey, and you, you too can be a millionaire. I mean, that's not right. it at all. But I think just like the seminar Lloyd and I had, you know, to be able to be in, in, in an area where you're teaching the power of communication mm-hmm. and and we don't have enough of that in the world today, clearly, or we wouldn't have the divide we do. The yeah. ability to communicate is important in any career. The ability to write and and is useful. So I'm hoping that I can use that degree and continue what would be my encore career while still writing, you know, film and television and books. But um, there's there's definitely, to your point, there's a reframing of mm-hmm. the traditional publishing and even the traditional networks. So with streamers, with with YouTube, yeah. with when Rich and I made our student films, it was over a thousand dollars a minute to by the time you had the negative cutting yes. and and everything and color correction. Um, wow. Nowadays for $5,000, you, you could have all the equipment to produce broadcast quality shorts and films. So yeah. it, it's well, the content, yeah. it's the, the stories. There is so much content that writing often gets overlooked as being less necessary. Mm-hmm. I think this, the same thing applies, though, for, for novel writing, too, because yeah. a few decades ago, with, before the word processor, you had to bang it out on a typewriter. And then someone had to edit it by hand, and then another person had to bang it out by typewriter. And so it was a big barrier to entry because not everyone could just like, oh, fill out this template, write this book, send it to Amazon, I'm an author. Right. And so now, though, that's changed. And so you've got the, that shift like you're talking about from the traditional publishing world where people would look for those books on the rack. I remember going to my college bookstore and like just browsing the book saying, ooh, there's a, a, a book that looks good. Oh, here's an author I liked. And picking up those books and buying those on a weekly basis and just devouring them. Nowadays, the market is just so saturated. It's hard to find um, some. It's hard to find someone you want to read, let alone find readers for what you write. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it is kind of a puzzle. But I think we, we we're all just trying different things to see yep. what works. And that's why I love listening to your podcast because there's 
so many different points of view, so many, even contradictory advice that I, I hear on your podcast, but it's all like sparks ideas and like say, I want to try this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're, we're doing this time too, is we created a launch team, right? About three yes. dozen people who are going to get the advanced readers copies and then post reviews on the day of, so that we can get that sort of like yep. front loaded review. Algorithm. Uh, yeah. And yes. going on right away. And then some extra social media exposure through those, those people and set up some hashtags and things like that. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Maybe next yeah. time we'll have twice as many people in our launch group and we'll sell twice as many books and so on and so on. Yeah. It's, but, it's, it's crazy how much information you have to digest. I was just hearing from Jenna Kutcher about having a street team. That was a brand new term to me three weeks ago. And now I've, you know, gotten a, a, another master's degree in street teams. Cause once you hear about it, you're like, who should I do this? <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. I do. think the answer to all, uh, whenever you ask yourself that question is yes. Right. Do it. I mean, especially if it doesn't cost you anything, right? There's so many things you can do that don't cost you anything. Developing relationships like this. Um, yeah. uh, the the thing too that you know, the, I, I had the idea this past year. I said I'm going to start a podcast where I'm going because you know my books are like it's at least several months, if not a year or so, before between books. Mm-hmm. But I can write a short story in a week, and yeah. so hey, what if I do a short story, put it out on a podcast, so people have something from me. Mm-hmm. Every week in between books. Yeah. And so that's where uh, I forgot to mention the name of it. It's, it's Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs, available on all podcast platforms and Audible. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, this is a good moment to transition into that. Uh, before I do, Ted Chang is somebody you should look into, Rich. He publishes collections of short stories between novels. Uh, and I think it's just a, a, a really great way to keep your flow of books coming so that people can see, oh, he's releasing another book. And if you're writing those stories to keep you sharp, it's a great, great process. Um, so let's go uh, round robin now. Arnold, where do you want people to connect with you after they've enjoyed hearing from you and want to learn more? Uh, they can connect through, uh, through the Rainy and Day website and Facebook group for sure. And also, uh, I'm very proud of my book, Little Green. It's for, you know, zero to seven year olds. It's promoting literacy and that positive attitude of anything or almost anything's possible. Uh, so that's isn't it possible.com has information about that and also the ESP book that I mentioned. Excellent. Okay. They'll have links to those in my show notes. Uh, and Lloyd. So um, I can be connected through the rainy and day uh, uh, Facebook page, of course, um, website. And I have, have my own author page. It's Lloyd.Auerbach.Author on Facebook. I have an Amazon author page. People do have to remember to spell my, my name with one L. That's one important thing. Um, I'm currently on Twitter uh, at Prof Paranormal as in Professor Paranormal. And um, I'll, I also am, I can be connected through the Rhine Center, the Rhine Research Center. It's uh, www.rhine, that's R-H-I-N-E dot org. Uh, I start my new round of classes. I do online parapsychology classes, one of which is called Presenting the Paranormal to the Public, which is for would-be writers and uh, speakers and other people to learn how to talk about this so people don't think you're crazy, but also how to be a good public speaker and good writer on the subject. In fact, what I just got a note from one of my students who has a best-selling book in Egypt, which is based on the class material that she got from my class. So that's fantastic. Cool thing. Um, so those are ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. And Rich, you got your turn already. Plus you're going to be a co-host moving forward on our, well, I, on I our just, show. They, both of these guys said go to the website, but they didn't say the website. 
Oh, it's yeah, do it. rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Although if, if you use the traditional spellings, they also have that domain name and redirects. Um, and then Perfect. the Facebook page is also Rainy and Day, uh, R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E. So is, it then, a, is the page a group where you can join or is it one where you can follow? It's a follow, yeah. It's a follow, okay. Yeah, we, we do have a group of um, our ARC reader, advanced readers. If anyone is interested in that, reach out to me on Twitter at, at Rich Hosick or uh, through my website, richhosick.com, and we'll hook you up if you're really interested in committing to reading the book, reviewing it. And uh, and buying a copy, you, we ask you to you know buy an ebook, and we'll send you a signed paperback. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave a little a little just trailing kind of cookie crumb for anybody who's interested. But Rich, I'm gonna talk to you about something that will change the way that you do your your arc team um, in in a really cool way. So uh, hang out at least for a minute after we finish. Uh, for everybody listening, we really appreciate it. And uh, tune in next Wednesday for the very first official story episode of TRBM. Gentlemen, appreciate you so much and we will be in touch. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers, because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?